Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. There's a lot of common themes that we talk about on this show. Some of it is representation of Orthodox Jews in media. Another common theme is the off the derech phenomenon, you know, people leaving Jewish observance. Um, because we work with this population in our Makom branch, and also because the topic of people leaving observance has become so popular in recent years that it's become really its own genre of, of television, of streaming services. Um, first started with memoirs. Uh, there's obviously a lot to talk about in this space. These are really interesting, gripping stories. Um, because we work with people with these stories up close at Makom, there's a lot of painful stories, and of course, stories that, um, people should be able to tell. I think one of the challenges that we've raised here at You in the City, though, is that when you repeatedly over and over again tell stories of people leaving and rejecting their Jewish background, it can give viewers, give the larger world, non-Jews, non-Orthodox Jews, and Orthodox Jews themselves, that uh, we are a population of people only worthy of leaving. It's a little bit hard to hear a story of rejection when we never heard a story, the backstory of like what was worth being, you know, Jewish or observant in the first place. Um, and to talk to us today about all these issues and some different ways that she's interfaced with them um, is a popular uh, Shaitel brand and Instagrammer, uh, Zelda Hare. You may know her on Instagram, uh, Zelda Volk uh, Volkov, and now Leibowitz. Uh, she just recently got remarried. So Zelda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is really a, a conversation I love having. So thank you so much. So yeah, if you could just start us off, um, because we're going to cover now um, like a documentary that uh, you're, you've been working on and a sort of your own journey, I guess, away and back. Um, how did you grow up Jewishly? Like where and, um, and how did you grow up uh, in the Jewish community? Um, sure. So I grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, in a uh, the headquarters of the Chabad uh, movement, the Chabad circle. My parents are actually Russian. Um, they were Russian refugees um, right by the fall of communist, a communist regime. And so when they, you know, escaped Russia at the time in the late um, 1980s, um, they settled in Crown Heights, because the the Rebbe, who um, was you know the leader of the Chabad movement, actually sent emissaries all across the world, but specifically um, in Russia at the time and Europe um, at the time for these Russian refugees that were leaving a very um, sort of godforsaken country. You know, there was no um, there was no you know, conversation about God or religion at all. And everything was really in hiding or in secret if there was something at all. So my parents grew up, you know, really secular under the communist regime. And when they left Russia, um, they went, um, they went to America by way of Vienna and Italy on sort of like a European journey that a lot of went through and they got connected there with the Chabad emissaries that were sent by the Rebbe. And so they were sent to Crown Heights uh, because that's kind of where they started to get affiliated. So when they, you know, they were so hungry for spirituality, for a connection with God. Um, and so they were just really, they cleaved to it so strongly. And so when they decided to you know, go on this journey, on this religious journey, like full force, they raised us very much, you know, in this, in this Judaism, 
in the in Judaism with like a full on, you know, there's nothing else. This everything else in the world is really um, you know, nothing in comparison. Like there is nothing um of substance, you know, because mm-hmm. that's really was their experience. They were really tortured by, you know, mm-hmm. the second world in Russia. So they wanted to give their children, you know, all of the holiness, all of the insulation from all the terrible things that they experienced from mm. anti um, from Russians. So they really raised us um, with this idea that, um, you know, godliness and Judaism is the only and absolute truth. And so they really wanted to protect us. And so they raised us within the Chabad system and fully, fully Chabad in the full, um, you know, ultra orthodox way. And usually a lot of people, when they hear that I come from Chabad, they're, they're sort of confused because I feel like in the world, Chabad kind of looks more modern compared mm-hmm. to the other ultra orthodox communities, you know, Satmar, you know, the communities in Borough Park and Williamsburg, which are a lot of the communities that are portrayed in the media when they're trying to kind of give that ultra orthodox impression. So mm-hmm. a lot are usually confused with Chabad. And so I always say that there's a full spectrum of like sort of religious levels in Chabad. Yeah. People that uphold the full standard of ultra-Orthodoxy to the full extent of the law, mm-hmm. very similar to, you know, people in Bar Park and Williamsburg, even though on the outside, maybe they're dressed more modern, but they're dressed very modestly to, mm-hmm. you know, the more modern, lighter approach of, um, you know, people that kind of, you know, bend the rules a little here and there to kind of fit their more secular lifestyle. So you'll find, mm-hmm. you know, sorts of, of all sorts of ways. And I think that mostly it, it, you know, if there's a reason why that is, is because Chabad is really um, trained and, you know, and we grow up within the system to, for outreach. So a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, the way in which we're taught is for questions and for, mm-hmm. um, you know, not just you do it and that's it, uh, but you really to kind of raise awareness within the more secular environments and communities that were raised sort of to go out and, you know, do outreach for all those Jews that, that weren't, um, you know, um, exposed to Judaism. However, I will say that we always like, you know, growing up, me and um, amongst my friends, we always discussed this idea how often we felt that we were raised with a lot of, you know, open-mindedness to the communities outside of our own, you know, mm-hmm. for people who've never been exposed to Judaism or any of the mitzvot or any of, you know, for anything about it. And we're very much open-minded and not judgmental and very accepting. Whereas for our own, for ourselves, mm-hmm. families, you know, there's sort of a whole different, um, you know, parameters of what's mm-hmm. considered acceptable. So there is that uh, discrepancy that definitely um, is very much an issue, I think, in our schools, in our system. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I myself like to kind of tackle on my own Instagram page and on my own conversations, mm-hmm. um, as it's something that I think is, you know, in my opinion, in order to really do outreach out into the world, we need to start at home. And so totally. that's something I have really witnessed firsthand in my shop, you know, dealing with Orthodox women. That was really my niche. It's it's who I was dealing with, um, you know, 
all day, every day. So it's something that I really had, you know, a window into those types of conversations and situations. And so I realized that even though I was trained and, um, you know, really taught about outreach to people who have never even saw an Orthodox Jew, um, none of that can really happen in a sustainable fashion if we don't, you know, fix, fix up the issues at home. It's an excellent point. And I would say even, you know, the experience that I've seen amongst our Mako members versus what I would call, you know, healthier families, um, you know, amongst the Hasidic or Lubavitch or Yeshivish world. I think that idea of being flexible and kind of giving your children grace is also just part of a healthier mindset that can vary from family to family. Um, And you can find that in other communities as well. If, you know, in a non-Jewish or secular family, there's a plan that the kid has to be a doctor and there's no way other than that one plan, a child in such a home would also feel totally squelched. And the question is, you know, are some of these issues systemic? You know, are are certain behaviors or practices in the community normalizing this type of treatment as opposed to bringing sort of healthier standards? So this is sort of alludes to, it sounds like there was a breaking point that, you know, you did not, this sort of upbringing did not resonate with you of sort of, um, grace and flexibility for people on the outside and less so for you. So when, where did you start to make your separation? So I think that, uh, you know, growing up within the system, I was always sort of like a go-getter, very competitive. And I always kind of wanted to be the best of whatever it is that I was doing. So whether it's in school, you know, I, I wanted to always get top grades. I wanted to make, um, you know, valedictorian. I wanted to get to the best seminary. It was always kind of like, I wanted to be the best at where I'm at. And it wasn't necessarily in alignment um, with who I was individually. It was just like, if I'm doing it, I'm going to you know, get to the top. And only later did I realize, I don't know, even know if I was so present. It was just more of like, if I'm, if I'm applying myself, if I'm here, then I'm going to apply myself to what we're doing. But it wasn't so much like a conscious decision of um, this is, you know, what sets my soul on fire. It was like these, th- there's no real options here. Like this is school. Uh, Definitely, you know, Torah and Judaism always resonated with me as the truth. I never, you know, ever felt that this is something that is wrong or doesn't feel truthful to me. It was just more um, like I never felt that I really had um, the true power of choice, you know, and Mm -hmm. I realized a few a few years ago where pride is very much correlated to choice. You know, when you have mm-hmm. Jewish pride or, you know, even people with their gay pride or whatever pride they have, it comes with, you know, standing up to um, the people that they may have, you know, had to risk um, the relationships with, or even in times of, um, you know, anti-Semitism or the pogroms, you know, in, in Europe, um, it, you know, they always said that it was so it's so much easier to kind of be religious when everyone's killing you than it is when it's so free and open and modern. And, you know, you're not going to lose your job uh, for the sake of your Judaism. So, you know, th- that Jewish pride, uh, when it comes at the risk of your own work and your own toil and, you know, standing up for it, there's really that aspect of, you um, really being proud with your choice and kind of having that, um, that autonomy, you know, and it's very connected. So I feel like I wasn't owning my choices. And so that's why the pride wasn't there so much. And it was just kind Mm -hmm. of like I'm going with the flow and going through the motions. Mm -hmm. So I would 
that, you know, after seminary, um, the next thing on the checklist, you know, for someone that's just kind of going with the flow, but trying to stay on top as well, it was to get married. So I went through, you know, the system, which was, you know, the shidduch system. And I got married uh, after three dates, you know, which was very common at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 19. And so he was the first guy that I went out with. And, you know, I was very, you know, sort of pure in my, in, in that, you know, in that state, you know, it was like the, really the first guy I ever spoke to. And I was very eager to kind of make my parents proud and, you know, build a family on purity and on the faith. And I was, and I really was applying myself to that, to that pure faith. Mm -hmm. And then, kind of everything started to hit me all at once when I realized that, you know, that wasn't enough just to kind of have that simple faith and, you know, to go in with, you know, a real kind of, um, yeah, I would just call it a simple faith. Like Mm -hmm. that wasn't me because me and my husband at the time, my first husband were worlds apart. Uh, you know, he's, he's British. And while he was an, he is an amazing dad, uh, we really didn't have, you know, any kind of intimate friendship or relationship. It was very much technical and very much, you know, we were building this family, sort of like business partners that were kind mm-hmm. of, with, you know, with our children. And that kind of was enough for me, you know, to justify and to defend for some time uh, with what I had at the time, with my consciousness, with my self-awareness. But as time went on and I built my business and I was traveling and I was questioning more and I felt, you know, stronger inside, you know, a lot, I couldn't rest that idea mm. that, um, you know, that he's just an amazing dad. Like that wasn't enough for me because I felt like he is an amazing dad and he will be an amazing dad for the rest of time. That doesn't mean that we have to, you know, stay married. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a lot of fear because there was a lot of stigma. Now I feel like slowly the community is sort of growing from that, even though there's Mm -hmm. still, but especially at the time there was a lot of stigma for, um, you know, single moms for divorce. Um, And so I, that was definitely a worry. But I also knew that, you know, if I wanted to be the best mother that I could be, I do need to go on this journey of just self, you know, figuring out things for myself, um, not just staying in the marriage because I'm having like physical help from their father. But, you know, I really needed that. And it wasn't even a religious Jewish uh, conscious choice. It was, you know, at the time I was very observant. I was, you know, wearing Oh, you know, only modest clothing. I was wearing a wig all the time. I was, you know, selling and making wigs. Um, so it wasn't, it definitely wasn't, um, you know, sort of like, oh, I'm going to get divorced and I'm going to be free from religion. It was, it was a feeling of like, I'm going to be free for, for myself and make a decision, you know, that right now feel right for me because we are not soulmates. Like it did not feel like we were partners other than parents of, of our children. So So let me interject here and say that right around this time, a documentary about your life started getting filmed, right? So now our viewers can understand that you're making this big life decision. You're still religious, but you meet up with um, a producer um, and she starts filming you in your life. Am I right about the timeline? Yes. So right, right when I got divorced about four or five days later, uh, Lauren had reached out and she asked if, uh, you know, she's doing a story on wigs. Um, and if I could, you know, 
you know, meet with her and see if we were in alignment with, you know, sharing my, my life as it pertains to wigs. Mm-hmm. At the time it was a store wigs. And um, I said, sure. And so really when I got divorced, it, it only hit me later, you know, sort of like, wow, you know, I'm divorced and I'm a single mom. But at the time it was very much like, this feels like the right thing to do. It wasn't, it wasn't heavy. So I was very doing <laughs> all of my, you know, affairs and work and all, all my, all the hats that I've been juggling, you know, continuously. Um, and I didn't feel like there was any kind of gap at the time. I feel like things started to hit me later on. Um, so I met with her and, you know, we hit it off and she was starting to film, um, you know, my life, my day to day, my kids, my job, my work, you know, things like that. Uh, we spoke a lot about modesty and at the time modesty was who I was. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't even difficult for me because I feel like I had, you know, kind of, um, you know, created my style around modesty in a way that Mm -hmm. like, but for me and in a way that, you know, was trendy. So that was, you know, where, where I was at the time. And then I started dating, um, my boyfriend, my ex-boyfriend, um, at the time. And I feel like that's sort of when everything, started to really sort of gradually and then all at once um, kind of hit me with, um, I think that as soon as I was conscious of the cognitive dissonance within myself, that's when I was saying, you know, I was brave enough to kind of get divorced and, you know, get out of this mold and not care what people think. Why is it so hard for me to, um, you know, be public about the fact that I don't wear a wig sometimes? Cause that's when I started to take off my wig and that mm. was a really, for me because it wasn't only how I will seem in the community. It was also my livelihood. It was also my business. So that was a little bit of a tougher um, process for me because, um, you know, I was like, why would, you know, from, I was very much like the face of my business and I was wearing, promoting the wigs and it was so easy for me to sell because it was, it was who I was. It wasn't even like I was selling it. It was, this is what I do, what I wear. And so when I took it off, because I didn't feel connected to the idea at all to wear a wig that is so connected to marriage and not be married and dating um, my ex-boyfriend at the time who was not connected to my wig at all, it just, it didn't feel right at all. So, um, sorry about that. It didn't feel right at all. And I took it off and I was very, you know, open with my followers and my clients. And I felt like, you know, it, it carried me through, you know, till then. And so I wanted to just continue that transparency. Um, and of course, I, I don't think it, you know, affected uh, my business. And then that kind of took me on a journey of, of really questioning everything and giving me the permission, giving myself the permission to really question, you know, my, the foundation of my faith and not just how it is reflected in my day-to-day life, but really like my beliefs and my thoughts and uh, God. And so I realized that, you know, from, from birth, I was um, really given all of this knowledge, all of this wisdom, all of this entire lifestyle. um, And I wasn't really given the choice because it was just so obviously the only way to everyone around me that it was, there was no room to, to question. And because my personality was very much 
a pleaser and very much, um, you know, always wanted to make my parents proud, always wanted to make my family proud, always wanted to be the best and the top. I never even questioned it, really. You know, it wasn't really something it wasn't I don't I didn't even know what my hobbies were. It was just like, yeah, like, you know, I was, you know, just wanted to kind of always um impact in a positive way and never like disrupt the piece or never just, you know, create any kind of tension or. or. So just as sort of as a note to parents right now, because I think, you know, again, from our experience with Mako members, um, I think there's a couple of things that loving and well-meaning parents can make mistakes on when it, I mean, whatever loving I mean, well, parents will make mistakes all over the place. That's part of parenting. Two things that I think we should just sort of say explicitly is that a kid does need to be told your kids do need to be told. Um, I love you no matter what you're always my baby. Um, you know, they, they need to know that the love is unconditional and that is not contingent upon, you know, what grades they get or what mitzvahs they do that you're here for them for the long haul because they're your baby and you're the parent. And that for sure reflects our relationship to our parent in heaven, that no matter how many mistakes we make or how far away we get, that we'll always be Hashem's children. And there's nothing can do that can ruin that. The other thing is creating an environment where questions are invited. Um, when a child doesn't feel comfortable to ask questions, they could come to the conclusion, maybe it's because we don't have the answers to, to explicitly tell your children throughout their upbringing, what's on your mind, you know, bring me your best questions, give them praise for asking good questions. These types of notes within parenting are really helpful um, to let the child know that you will still love them and be there for them, even if they were to run away and stop all Jewish observant tomorrow, um, and that the home is a place to have open conversation. Okay, that's just my narration. Um, yeah, continue. And I, I, I do want to add, it's actually very timely because it's coming up for Pesach. And Pesach is all about questions, you know, the four signs and all our questions. And I think it's important also to realize that sometimes we're so afraid to be labeled the Tom or the Shane Ludea Lishal. And we want to just be labeled the chacham, but it's important yeah. to realize we are all for, you know, we have times where we feel very passionate and we know we are very motivated and we feel very clear and we have tons of clarity. And then sometimes something could happen and we are just totally at a loss. And I think that as a parent myself, um, we're, you know, we, we, we have fear. We want obviously what's best for our child. We want our child to be, you know, a citizen that, that is a, you know, that could contribute to society. We want them to have to be meaning to have, to live a life that's full of meaning and of con and contentment and to just be happy. But the thing is that it's a process. And I feel like we, we wish we could just like, you know, press all the buttons and there's like a shortcut for our children, but the process of a child, you know, learning to walk is falling. And I think that that's the hardest thing for a parent. And I think that there was, um, you know, an analogy that I heard that was just so great that it's like when a car is not working, you press the gas and it's just not working. You could, you could press the gas even more and you could give it even more energy, but if it's not going, it's not going. Mm -hmm. And often what, what it needs is actually release of pressure. It needs, you need to take off the emergency brake that actually happened to me this morning. You actually need to release the pressure in order mm -hmm. because it's so it seems so counterintuitive. It's, it seems so like the opposite to love your child. You know, stepping back seems like the last thing you're going to do, but that's actually what it is that they need. And they need 
us to release the pressure, but not in a way that, oh, do whatever you want. You know, it's your life. Do, you know, mess it up if you want it. Not in that way, but in a way that I trust you. You know, I mm. trust you. So you're going to rise up to the occasion rather than, you know, looking at them, judging them. And more, more times than not, when we look down on them, they fall to that, to that uh, prediction. So, so Justice, to, to recap, so Lauren Greenhall, producer at New York Post, who you had did an interview with first on your uh, company, comes in, she's filming your story. Um, there's talk, there's interest in, you know, big uh, networks to pick up this documentary. And then over time, it sort of falls away from the wig angle and starts to just now focus on your life, which was a religious life and a modest life. And now it's sort of a life of maybe get another OTD story to right. appear on one of these networks. Yeah. So, so at first it was, you know, I was supposed to just do my wigs, you know, how I manufacture and how I make them and all about how hair and wigs impact, you know, people, you know, Americans, um, one in three people actually wear something in their head, like wigs or extensions. So first it was that sort of that, um, you know, angle. And then as soon as I sort of took off my wig and started questioning my own path and, um, and I really left observance and, um, you know, I got tattoos and I became a life coach and I really started to apply myself to a lot of like, um, you know, conversations it, that were, that I was learning from a lot of monks, um, and just the Buddhist, um, culture and the Buddhist religion and just a lot of their philosophies and psychology and in general, secular psychology really interested me. Anything that was like sourced in Torah was like very triggering for me. And so it's, it was like, I really just applied myself to the wisdom in, you know, the other, the other uh, nations. nations. And so um, it was very interesting because I actually created a course um for, you know, becoming more myself. And I was teaching all this and I was like quoting everybody you could think of. And I, and I, yeah. And so it, it's, it's like when you're, you could have the truth right in your, your face, you could be fed the truth, but if you're going to be, you know, if someone's going to choke you with it, then it's not, it's not healthy either. And so that's how I felt. So it's like, you could, there is such a thing as too much good, you know, and mm -hmm. that's where I felt that I was. And so I really, you know, and actually now I'm redoing my entire course through the lens of, of Hasidus and Kabbalah because, because it's, it's a real waste not to use what we have. But so, yeah, so she, she filmed me through that sort of journey. Um, the entire story kind of changed constantly and continuously because I was changing. So she, you know, she was like, I never, um, I never thought, you know, this, this is how it would go. And so she was filming I think now she has like four, almost maybe five, I think like four, four and a half years of footage. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. So you told me that you in the city actually had an impact on you on this journey and we only connected very recently and it was such a touching uh, story if you could share with us. Yes, yeah, so a couple of years, this was, um, I think more than five years ago, I went with my cousins, Dima and Vera, who's actually been a big part of my journey as well. And they were really excited about the, you know, the gala, the dinner that you guys were having. The All-Star Awards, yeah. The, yes, the All-Star Awards. And, um, you know, what What caught my attention was that you were honoring um, Joyce Azria, who to me, she was, you know, someone that I looked up to in fashion and modesty. 
And so I was really excited and I had no idea who, like, I did not know her on a personal level. I only knew her from what I saw on Instagram and in the media. And so her speech was just so inspiring. I didn't even come up to her because I was so not, I was so shy, you know? And then years later, um, she actually bought a wig for me and then we re- got reconnected and it's just crazy how, you know, it comes full circle and she's mm-hmm. really a huge part of my of my coming back into religion uh, when I moved to Florida during COVID. And I really was, was very, you know, far from my observance at the time. And she, you know, because of the wigs that she bought, bought for me, we got reconnected and she really inspired me through Shabbos and just through her, her kindness and her, her wisdom. Beautiful. Tell us about, and we have to come to a close shortly. Um, you wrote a message to Julia Hart um, when Unorthodox, My Unorthodox Life came out. You're both the children of Russian parents who became Bali Chuva, who were raised in a strict environment. Can you share with us that Instagram message and sort of your perspective on what this unorthodox journey is about versus how the media shows it? Yes, absolutely. So when I watched, I really only watched, I think I got to like the first two episodes. It just really struck me as somebody that is angry, uh, resentful, and is on, you know, on the trajectory of, you know, fame and fortune. And I, and I realized that because I too was in that space, not a fame and fortune, because that didn't really connect to me, but I really wanted to just be myself. And I did, and anyone that would get in the way of that, you know, I would preach and lecture and like, just go, I was just in that, you know, very resentful, angry stage, because I felt like I wasn't allowed to be who I wanted to be. And so when she, the the part that really got to me was when she was sort of enforcing or really infringing on her son's sort of comfort level of how he wants to interact with girls and how he wants to date, that really bothered me. And it, because I actually had, uh, you know, my daughter, she's 11 now, but no matter where I was in my religious observance, she always wanted to be sneeze. She always wanted to be modest. She's really pure and beautiful. And it always really bothered her when I wouldn't be sneeze. And so I would always try to have the conversation with her that the way I dress, obviously it affects her because I'm her mother, but I really need to, you know, in certain times, like when I go to her school, when I go to her classmates, you know, obviously then I have to um, really, you know, honor her feelings and honor her comfort. However, you know, all the other times when I'm doing my work and I'm just living my life, I really have to also um, live in alignment with myself. However, at the time when I was so triggered with modesty, I could have easily made her, you know, at the time she was like six, seven, um, you're wearing this and you're wearing that. And I never had the chance to wear, you know, jeans and I never had the chance to wear this. And this is, you want to be cool. And you want to, you know, I could have totally broken her by not allowed her to really express herself through her own soul and the way that she felt connected to. But I, I really had to push myself and say, this is literally the opposite of what I experienced in the other way. And just because I experienced the opposite doesn't make it right you know, this is where I am right now, who knows what I'm going to, you know, be feeling tomorrow. But right now, this is how she wants to dress. And she has every right to dress how she wants, um, especially when it's in, in the form of modesty, you know, it's not like she she wants to, um, you know, just dress, you know, provocatively and, you know, um, expose herself in a, in a dangerous fashion. So, so this is something that I actually have to really work on myself. And I felt like resonance in it when I saw how Julia was sort of infringing on her son's comfort 
And, um, and so what I wanted to say is that when we aren't um, in charge of our behaviors, of our actions, when we don't feel like we truly have the power, then mm-hmm. we need to sort of, um, I don't want to say pretend, but what we need, that power needs to go somewhere. You know, they, there needs to be a release of that power somewhere. And so the truth is when you really do have power, usually you find that you don't really need to enforce it. You don't really need to, you know, to scream it from the rooftops because you know, and that's, that's the only thing that matters when you know, you know, and it's that you don't need to, um, you know, uh, enforce it. So, so I felt that that's really what, what was, what made me uncomfortable about her and about the show. And um, I hope that she's able to, to really give herself that space to, to heal and to, you know, to have that therapy and to really allow her children to manifest their, their individual light rather than um, what she feels they need to do. Because essentially whatever sort of messaging she got at home where she was feeling controlled by, you know, the home dynamics, um, she's now sort of continuing that onto her children and kind of repeating that cycle of dysfunction. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, there's so much of sort of the mental health journey as sort of part of the the thing that makes um, Judaism feel like it's not a choice or that it's something painful and makes so many of these things uh, triggered because ultimately we should raise our children. Um, you know, God gives us free will. And so we have to be able to give that over to our children so they can feel like they have the choice to choose or not choose and still be lovable and whole um, and, you know, acceptable to us. So, um, well, fascinating story um and we're super excited to see this journey unfold hopefully on a you know a streaming service or a big network uh sometime soon um and what an interesting twist of events of in the community on the way out and then getting to watch your journey sort of that authentic journey of finding your way back thank you yeah i'm really excited i'm excited to see what I did four years ago, I almost forgot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Art, we wish you continued Hatzlacha um, in you know really connecting in an authentic way. Um, and thank you to our viewers for watching. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.